Everyone who encounters Jesus renders a judgment on him. Everyone. So maybe you're here this morning and you are intrigued by Jesus. Maybe people have been telling you about him, bringing you to church to hear about him, giving you books and encouraging you to examine his claims. If that's you, you should know that in due time you will render a judgment on Jesus. If you accept Jesus, that will be one judgment. If you reject Jesus, that will be another judgment. If you remain indifferent to Jesus, that will be still another judgment. Now, something that may surprise you is that many people render several different judgments on Jesus throughout the course of their lives. I'll use my story to, to show you how that might work. Uh, my early childhood years were spent largely indifferent to Christ. I grew up in a functionally atheistic home, uh, and uh, I just didn't know much about God. I didn't know much about Jesus. I hadn't heard much about the claims that he had made about himself. As a young child, my wealthy grandmother paid for me to go to a private Christian school. For her, the emphasis was more on private than on Christian. She just wanted me to have a good education. And, and during my time at this Christian school, I heard some Bible stories and I, I learned how to sing some Christian songs, right? Father Abraham had many sons. You know what I'm talking about. Take it away. No. Yeah. No, 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 no. And I think I remember going to chapel. But what really stood out to me about Jesus at that, at that time was uh, some of the kids had told me that Jesus doesn't let Christians watch The Simpsons. And so I didn't really, I, I really like The Simpsons, you know. So for me, at that point in my life, Jesus was nice enough, sure, but he seemed like every other authority figure in my life. He wouldn't let me do certain things that I wanted to do, so I was basically indifferent to him. Now, a short time later, as... Uh, a child, something strange began to happen. I began to hate God. When I was very young, my mother, who was an alcoholic and a drug addict, uh, she began to abuse me quite severely. Some of my earliest memories in life are of my mother abusing me in ways that I won't elaborate on from the pulpit. One night, I remember the night, or really the morning, that I began to hate God. My mom was in a drunken stupor and drug-induced rage, and she locked me in a room, and she spent hours torturing me until finally I was able to escape, and I ran to the bathroom, and I locked myself in that room. And, and what I did next, looking back on that night, it, I don't really know why I did it, but I began to pray. Maybe it was just something instinctual. You know, Or maybe one of those teachers at that Christian school that I had been going to, maybe they had told me that if I ever needed help, I could pray and ask God to help me. I don't know why I started to pray that night, but as I sat there crying on the bathroom floor, I prayed over and over again, and I asked God to help me, to save me, to rescue me, until I fell asleep. I woke up the next morning on the bathroom floor, to the sound of my mother beating the door down in anger. From that moment on, I hated God. 
Fast forward, the age of 18, I was once again in a crisis situation. My world was coming down around me. Everything was collapsing. This time, not because of the sin of someone else in my life, but because of my own sin. And I called out to God again. And this time he saved me. He miraculously saved me. He opened my eyes to see him in the fullness of his glory. And as he did, he melted that heart of anger that I felt towards God. And he replaced it with love. I had new eyes to see. And every time I looked at Jesus, what I saw was truth and beauty and goodness. Now, when I was a very, very young child, I was indifferent to a God that I didn't really know. When I was an older child, I hated a God that I didn't really understand. And then, as I was beginning to become an adult, I came to know and love Jesus. Because God had given me the ability to render an accurate judgment on who he is. And rendering an accurate judgment about Jesus is exactly what this morning's text is all about. Everywhere that Jesus went in his ministry, people would encounter him, and they would evaluate him, and then they would render a judgment on him. In this morning's text, we see in verse 5, for example, that Jesus' brothers are essentially rendering a judgment on him. Later in verse 12, we're going to see that the Jews are judging Jesus. And then in the very last section of chapter 7, verses 45 through 52, we see that the officers of the temple court and the religious leaders render a judgment on Jesus. And as we work our way through this passage, you're going to see that Jesus divides people. He divides people. Some encounter Jesus and they love him, they believe in him, They put their hope in him. Others hate him, want to arrest him, and seek to kill him. And so right in the middle of the chapter, Jesus commands them all, and commands us as well, to make sure that as they evaluate the claims of Christ, that they do so with accurate judgment. Look at verse 24, chapter 7. Verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. My prayer for us this morning is that every single soul in this room will, by the help of God's Spirit, as we study God's Word, render an accurate judgment on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me pray and ask God to help us do that. Father God, we are corrupt. Our vision is hazy, cloudy with sin and the influence of this world, the corruption of our flesh. But your Holy Spirit can bring light to the eyes. Your Holy Spirit can clarify all things and help us to see your Son rightly. So Father God, give us a beautiful glorious, accurate vision of Jesus this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. Note takers, I've got three points for you this morning. Here they are. The authenticity of Jesus, 
the emotions of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. Authenticity, emotions, and authority. And each of these points has to do with a judgment that someone in this text is rendering about Jesus. So there's a judgment rendered on his authenticity. There's a judgment rendered on his emotions. There's a judgment rendered on his authority. Point number one, let's, get, let's uh, dive in. The judgment rendered on Jesus' authenticity. The first judgment in this morning's text, it comes from none other than Jesus' very own family, his brother's half-brothers to be exact, but you get the point, his family. You can see that in verses 1 through 5. Look there with me. Follow along as I read out loud. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go up to Judea, which is also Jerusalem, okay? Judea is the region. Jerusalem is where most of this was happening in the temple. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booze was at hand, so his brother said to him, leave here. Go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. By this point in Jesus' ministry, his messianic identity is beginning to shine through. He's really beginning to reveal himself to the world, so much so that even his own brothers are forced to reckon with his claims, with his identity. They too must render a judgment. Is Jesus who he says he is? And, you know, it seems like his brothers have some reservations. The text clearly says it in a more straightforward manner. They don't believe and. Man, as I was reading this this week, I just thought, you know, I don't have any brothers, but I can just imagine, if I did, how difficult it would be to believe that your brother is the Messiah of the world. Man, even if, even if you grew up with a really, 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 really good, well-behaved brother, like everyone knew, like, this dude is really, like, a good person. That's what it would have been like to grow up with Jesus, right? He never sinned. Even still, it would be almost impossible to believe that your brother is from heaven, that he's going to save the entire world. Jeez. One one thing I think we see in the unbelief of Jesus' brothers is the shocking fullness of Jesus' humanity. You remember, of course, that as Christians, we believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Now, some of us, when we think about that, we might think of fully God, fully man. We think something like his body was fully human, but the inside parts, you know, his spirit, his soul, that was the fully God part, kind of like a ghost in a shell kind of a thing. Well, that's not super accurate. He had a human nature and a divine nature. Now, the more theologically astute among us, the well-trained, the ones who wear jackets with patches on the elbows and read dense volumes written by Dutch theologians, we may know something of the hypostatic union which speaks of the dual natures of Christ and how they coexist in the same person, two natures, one person. Well, that's all true and it's all good. But I think what we see in this morning's text is another angle on Jesus' humanity. It's a less 
academic, more earthy, more boots-on-the-ground angle on Jesus' humanity. Jesus was so fully human that it was possible to live with him for 30 years and never suspect him of being God. Even if you thought he was the best dude ever, you never suspected him of being God. Quite the opposite, in fact, in this morning's text. He's so human that his brothers doubt his divinity. One of the things that I, I love about the Bible, and the more time you spend reading the Bible, the more of this you'll find, so let me just encourage you to be a consistent reader of Scripture, is I, I love the way it just demonstrates its own authenticity without even trying to. The way it just speaks to the human experience so accurately, so precisely. In this morning's text, for example, we see Jesus' brothers doing what brothers do. They issue a challenge to Jesus. That's what's happening in those verses, verses 1 through 5, right? It's almost a dare. They go, okay, Jesus, you're the Messiah. If you can really do all these things that you claim to be doing, well, then go up to the Feast of Booze. It's the most popular season of the year. Everyone's going to be there. Why not show up, show out? Flex on everyone. Do your thing. Break onto the scene, Mr. Messiah. If you really are who you say you are. And then we read Jesus' response to them in verse 6. And it's a simple response. My time has not yet come. And then there's a, another little comment there about uh, uh, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. We're going to skip over that for now. Just focus on the, my time has not yet come. Hmm. We'll talk about that more in point two, but for now, I just want you to see that Jesus does not respond to his brother's challenge. He's not a circus chimp, you know? He, he doesn't dance for peanuts on the ground. He doesn't perform on demand. He didn't perform on demand for the powerful official from Herod's court back in chapter 4. He didn't perform on demand for the Jews demanding a sign from him so that they would be able to really believe in him this time. And he will not perform on demand even when he has to deal with the pressure of intra-family challenges. Jesus does not need to be authenticated by his brothers. He knows who he is, and he knows where he's from, and he knows the plan that his father has set in place for him. He knows his father's timing. Now, I want you to see something here about Jesus' brothers and how they're acting. I want you to see that although they are the brothers of Jesus, the sons of Mary, they are, in fact, acting more like the sons of Satan. I'll explain. We just read, my lovely, amazing wife just read, about, uh, we read the encounter that Jesus had with Satan, the temptation event in the desert. What did Satan do there? Well, he tried to get Jesus to perform miracles on demand so that he could authenticate himself. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. Just flip back over. We're in John, just a few pages away, back to Matthew. Starting in chapter four. 
starting in verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, right? Isn't that just what Jesus' brothers are saying? If you really are the Messiah, he says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So dance, monkey. Do a sign. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Whenever something happens twice in Scripture, it's pretty significant. Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Twice in this temptation event, we see Satan saying, If you really are who you say you are, then prove it. That's exactly what Jesus' brothers are doing in this morning's text. That's exactly what the crowd of Jews did. That's what the the Pharisees will do later on. That's what King Herod will do as Jesus prepares to make the final journey to the cross. But I want you to even just see the larger pattern throughout the book of John. People are treating Jesus like a sideshow attraction. They're treating him like someone who will perform on demand, but he won't do it. Not for officials, not for kings, not for crowds, not for family, and not for you. I wonder, friends, in what way you might be imitating Satan in your relationship with Jesus. Whether you claim to belong to Jesus or whether you're here investigating his claims. I wonder if you said something like, God, I'll really believe in you if. And then, you know, you can fill in the blank. I don't know what your if is. You do. Probably as I'm saying this, something will come to mind. Or Jesus, I'll I'll start being more faithful. I'll start being to church more regularly. I'll start really doing all the stuff that I know I'm supposed to be doing if you give me this girl or this guy. If you... Give me the career that I really want. You know, get me out of this dead-end job. If you provide me with the financial security that I long for. If you get rid of my anxiety. If you cure me of my depression. Then. Then I'll believe. Many of us have come into contact with Jesus. The Lord of the universe. The King of kings. And we have demanded a performance from him, promising that if he dances just right for us, then we will believe in him. But if Jesus is who he says he is, friends, then you should know as you sit there in your pew this morning that 2,000 years ago, Jesus already accomplished the greatest sign of all. He rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death and Satan and hell. And then he ascended into the heavens. What if the Holy Spirit only ever gives you two signs? The sign of Christ's resurrection and the sign of your resurrection from the spiritual grave. And what if he does that and never does another miracle again in your life that you are aware of? Would that be enough? For you to believe in him, his work, his identity? 
We have to understand, friends, that we are creatures. He is the creator. We do not get to dictate to God the ways in which he must authenticate himself to us. As a father, I do not respond to the tantrums of my children by giving in and giving them whatever they want. I don't negotiate with terrorists. (laughs) The same thing is true of our God and our Father in heaven. Just because you really, 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 really feel like you need this right now in order to believe doesn't mean that God must move in order to do that for you. He may choose to do that. As soon as I got saved, the Lord did a really big miracle in my life. And I don't know that he's done many more since then. Not, not such an obvious breaking in and the laws of the universe kind of unraveling kind of a miracle in my life. He may choose to be kind to us and give us a sign, but if he doesn't, He's already given us the greatest sign of all. Point number two. The judgment of Jesus' emotions. The emotions of Jesus. The second group to render a judgment on Jesus this morning is not found in the text. The second group to render a judgment on Jesus this morning is right here in this room. You. Me. Those who are studying this text. Let's look at the text. Look at verses 6 through 10. Go back to John chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 7. Verses 6 through 10. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? So the first group to render a judgment on Jesus, his brothers, might have thought that Jesus was a fraud. The second group, maybe us as we read this text, might think that Jesus is afraid. Why might we think that? Well, it's because of a a couple different things here in the text. First, Jesus tells his brothers that he's not going to go up to Judea for the feast. And verse 1 tells us that it's because the Jews are seeking to kill him. So we might think that Jesus is afraid of dying, that he's afraid that the Jews are going to grab him and, you know, try him and take his life. But then it seems to get even worse. The text says that Jesus did eventually go up to Jerusalem. He went up to Judea for the feast. But when he went, he went after his brothers and he went in secrecy. What's up with that? Well, let's, let's do some clarif- clarifying. Let's make some clarifications When Jesus went up in secrecy, it doesn't mean, you know, like he went up Mission Impossible style. You know, he went up in disguise and he had, uh, he was cloaked in darkness and that he moved and lurked in the shadows. I think what John means here is that Jesus didn't travel with his normal entourage. He didn't do things. As you're reading the book of John, you see that everywhere that Jesus goes, people are kind of following him in large crowds. You have to remember that by this point in Jesus' public ministry, he becomes something of a legend. 
When he traveled, people followed him. You remember, he crossed the Sea of Galilee to get away from people, and thousands of people chartered boats to follow him across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus showing up at the temple during the feast would have been like the Beatles showing up at the Ed Sullivan show in the 60s. It would have been chaos. It would have been a very, very public spectacle. And almost certainly the Jews would have immediately seized him and killed him. At the beginning of the feast, there would have been less people there. The middle days of the feast is when the crowd would have been at its largest. So it seems reasonable that Jesus would have thought, if I show up immediately before a whole bunch of people are there, the Jews can kind of grab me before it becomes much of a scene and do what they're going to do without the crowd reacting. And he didn't want that. But how do we know that Jesus wasn't afraid? How do we know that he's actually just being wise and that he's being calculating in this decision, that it's not a decision rooted in fear? Well, I think you can see it just by looking at verse 14. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Now look at it. It says he went into the temple at the middle of the feast. That's when everyone would have been there, all the stragglers. You know how it is. Think about this Sunday morning service. Welcome and introductions. Will's up here trying to give you guys announcement. A quarter of the church isn't here. By the time we get to the second song, everybody's here, right? That's kind of how it works. Now imagine an entire nation coming up into the temple like that. The middle of the feast was when everything would be swollen. And Jesus goes right up into the middle of the temple and he stands up and starts publicly preaching and teaching. Jesus wasn't afraid. Jesus was all about the timing. That's what it says in verse 6 and verse 8. We just read that. He says, my time has not yet come. What, What does he mean when he says my time has not yet come? Well, he's referring to the time of his death. See, friends, Jesus is not ignorant of the fact that he's going to die. He knows that he's going to die. He understands that his death on the cross is the purpose for which God sent him to earth in the first place. He wasn't afraid of that. He just knew that he had to give that sacrifice at the right time. We're not going to try to plot out that timing this morning, but just so you know, dying right here before he even got to the last leg of his ministry is not the appropriate time. So he adjusts his plans accordingly. I wonder if his brothers believed him. I mean, the text already says that they didn't believe him about his claims. I wonder how they interpreted his response to them. You know, Jesus says, no, I can't go up now. It's not the right time. Because if they're anything like brothers are today, I can just imagine how that conversation, oh, oh, it's not the right time? Right, 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 right. You're probably not afraid. I can just see his brothers impugning his motives here as they doubt what he's saying. I wonder if we were there with his brothers, if we would do the same thing. It's just in our nature. We love to assume the worst about others. Even our brothers and sisters in Christ, it just comes so naturally to us. We ascribe bad motives to people so easily especially when it comes to cowardice, you know, because in our mind's eye, we're all, you know, braveheart. We're all ready to storm the beaches of Normandy, you know. When other people demonstrate anything that we can possibly perceive of as cowardice, we ascribe it to cowardice. 
We see this all over the place in our current context, do we not? Think about the state of American evangelical Christianity and think about how pervasive this sin of ascribing bad motives to our brothers and sisters is. You can think about it from the left or from the right. Let's take the left-leaning evangelicals first. There's a habit among some left-leaning evangelicals to use any major cultural moment to seek out hidden sins in the lives of those who profess to be Christians. So after a major police shooting event, for example, left-leaning evangelicals might go on your Twitter or your Facebook or your Instagram or your Snapchat or your TikTok to see that, it, that you've done the appropriate virtue signaling, to make sure that you've made the appropriate comments. And if they don't find anything or if they don't find something stated exactly as they think it should be stated, as strong as it should be stated, as soon as as it should be stated. Well, then they'll assume that you're compromising out of fear of upsetting your constituency and trying to preserve some sort of hegemonic power structure. Right-leaning evangelicals do the exact same thing. We just do it over different issues. You know, CRT is all the rage today. It's all in the news Public school boards are arguing about it. Seminaries are arguing about it. Podcasters are doing episodes on it. And from the right, it might go like this. If you don't denounce critical race theory as strongly as we think you should, when we think you should, it's because you're going woke. Or it's because... Well, you could just ascribe all kinds of bad motives. Or if you don't take a stand against COVID tyranny in the exact way that I think you should take a stand against COVID tyranny, well, and then you insert the bad motives you see. But friends, you should know that silence is not necessarily violence. Inactivity does not equal cowardice. And a delayed response is not necessarily rooted in fear. It may be. Oh, I have no doubt that there are people who should speak about things who don't speak about things because they are afraid and it's because they have more fear of man in their hearts than they fear God. But you should also know that there is a well-structured biblical category for prudential silence, for the wisdom of inactivity, all of which is very ill-suited to the pragmatic American mind. When it comes to our fellow Christians, listen to me, brothers and sisters, we would do well to err on the side of interpreting their silence charitably. Maybe that pastor isn't afraid to speak. Maybe he's just obeying Scripture by being quick to listen and slow to speak. That's in the Bible. Maybe that person is author, theologian, seminary professor, social media personality. Maybe that person isn't afraid to act, but is merely waiting on the right time to move for maximal efficacy. For all you know, that person is acting. They're just not acting in the way that you think they should be acting. Maybe they're having private conversations. They're praying, they're reading, they're planning, and they are waiting on God's time to move. Not yours. As we wrap up point number two, I'd like for you to consider the fact that not only was Jesus not afraid of the Jews trying to kill him, but he was also not afraid of his brothers and their opinion of him. Some of us can identify more with the former than the latter. 
What I mean is, many of us would say that we're not afraid to die for the gospel. But maybe we're afraid of being unpopular because of it. We're not so much afraid of what people will do to us, but maybe what they'll think of us. Is that you? If that is you, I'd like you to take a moment and think back with me to a different time in your life. Think back to your time in high school or maybe middle school. Okay, And if you're in high school or middle school, you should really pay attention to what I'm saying right now. Try to remember back to your time in high school or middle school. Some of you guys, I know, I see the wheels turning. You're like, can I access those memories? It was so long ago. Now, think about how much you cared about what your peers thought of you in those days. Do you remember how much excitement you would feel when, when people, all your peers thought well of you then? Do you remember how much embarrassment and shame you would feel if you became unpopular because of this, that, or the third? Think about how much your joy and contentment in life was glued to the opinions of teenagers. Now, as you look back on those days, doesn't that all seem ridiculous? I mean, doesn't it all just seem absolutely ridiculous? If you could go back to your ninth grade self, sitting there with your pipsqueak voice, face covered in acne, you know, with your Frito Bandito mustache, answering the phone, hello, and whatever the lady's equivalent of that is, wouldn't you go back to your ninth grade self and say, hey, none of this matters. In like five years, you're not going to care at all what any of these people think of you. Well, friends, that's what heaven is going to be like for us. We're going to get to heaven, and we're going to behold the face of Christ, and we're going to look back on the way that we thought about people and their opinions of us in this life, and we are going to feel ridiculous. And the you in heaven, if he could, if she could, would come back and say to the you now, hey, why do you care so much what these people think about you? You have your Father in heaven. You have his approval. Fear him above all else. Let his opinion be the only opinion that matters. Let every other opinion die a thousand deaths. If you're thinking, man, Sean, I've really dropped the ball on that. I've, I've cared too much what people think about me. I haven't been very much like Jesus. I haven't been able to discard the opinions of others and just follow the will of my Father. I've got good news for you. You can start today. You can make a conscious decision today. Not to be reckless and to just go out and damage a bunch of relationships by saying whatever comes on you. No, you're not being guided by your own feelings. You're being guided by the will of the Father. So you can make the decision today to put the fear of man to death in your life, to fear God above all else. Kids, this would be a good time for you to focus. Uh-huh, look it, I see one of you talking and not listening. I'm talking to you, Hoyt. Uh-huh. Yeah, who else? Asher, Andrew there in the back. Do you guys hear me? Patience, Bella. Patience, sit up in the pew. Look at me real quick. Sit up. If you want to be like Jesus, if you want to be wise beyond your years, even as a child, 
you can make a decision to care what God thinks about you more than anybody else. Okay? All right. Point number three, authority. Sometimes when I tell one of my kids to tell another one of my kids to do something because I'm being lazy, I'll say it like this. Here's how I'll phrase it. I'll, uh, for example, I'll say, uh, patients, tell Bella that I said to take out the trash, right? I don't ever say, tell Bella to take out the trash. I say, tell Bella that I said to take out the trash. Now, why? Why do I say it that way? Why do I say, tell her that I said? Because authority matters, right? If patients said, Bella, take out the trash, Bella would be like, you can tell me what to do. We want to know that if someone is going to speak into our lives in some sort of binding, authoritative way, that they actually have the authority to do so. And in this morning's text, Jesus stands up in the temple and he speaks authoritatively into the lives of all who are present. Look at verse 19. When they had... Oh, wrong chapter. Here we go. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here's what's happening. Jesus is saying, listen, you guys are interpreting the law which was written by Moses, but your interpretation's all bad. And I can tell that it's bad because here's the case study. I went to go heal a man on the Sabbath and you said that you used your authority to say that my authority was wrong. Case study proves that you guys don't understand authority at all. So I'm here to correct that. And then in verses 37 through 39, you see Jesus making the same offer to the entire crowd that he made to the woman at the well. Look there. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, and this is the climax of this event, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So Jesus not only stands up and corrects their interpretation of the law, not only claims to have authority over how you interpret the law, he also claims that to have the authority to give life. He's already done this, so we're not going to hang out on that. We talked about that a little bit before, back in chapter 4. So the question is, for the crowd, does Jesus have the authority to say these things? Does Jesus have this authority to make this offer? Look at verses 14 through 18. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. 
Jesus stands in this temple and he communicates with an otherworldly authority. But it's not immediately obvious to everyone who's present. You see that again by, in, by verse 15's use of the word marvel, right? The people are incredulous. They're trying to wrap their minds around Jesus' claims. They're trying to make sense of it. They're struggling to believe it. And one of the main stumbling blocks to their acceptance of Jesus' authority is the fact that he's never studied. The fact that he's never studied. What does that mean in verse 15? Go back and just look at it again. The Jews therefore marveled. They're, They're having trouble believing this, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, the studied language here, it doesn't mean that Jesus never read the Bible or that he never memorized Scripture or that he never pondered the things of God or had theological discussions. What the Jews are referring to here is a kind of formal theological rabbinical study. One author puts it like this, listen. Rabbinical teaching in the first century was an intricate study of quoting your ancestors. It was sort of like case law with various precedents. So this rabbi says this versus that rabbi says that. And so you can read through the teachings of the rabbis, like found in the Mishnah, which collects them from the first centuries and earlier. And you will see that Rabbi Ben Eleazar says this about the Sabbath, but Rabbi Ben Elijah says that about the Sabbath. So this studying is the constant searching out of the opinions of rabbis, of previous religious leaders. Okay? So for the crowds, the authority of Jesus is suspect because he hasn't gone through the proper established channels to get credentialed. But who established those channels? Did God establish those channels? Are you aware of any place in the Old Testament that says in order to be a teacher in Israel, you have to go through a rabbinical training school? Is it in second hesitations? You can read the entire Old Testament and not find a hint of anything like this. God has never commanded his people to have this. This is an extra-biblical tradition. Now, this point of contention may seem somewhat inconsequential for your life. If you're sitting here thinking, well, Sean, I'm not trying to be a teacher of God's word. How does this apply to me? Well, friends, this applies to you significantly. If you care about the health of the church of Jesus Christ, this controversy will prove to be very practical for you. And let me show you what I mean. Take a moment and think over this question. What are some of the most important things that a church should look for when mm, appointing a new missionary? Hiring a new pastor. We'll stick with the pastor for now. But just know you can kind of plug in other ministerial roles here like a missionary. What's the, one of the main things that a church will look for when hiring a new pastor? Well, I can tell you, the first item on the list for the vast majority of churches is, does this pastor have a seminary degree? So consider the Methodist Church, one of the largest uh, denominations in America, the United Methodist Church. I'll read from their website. Uh, Excuse me, from uh, an article linking to their website. The United Methodist Church, one of the largest Protestant Christian denominations in the U.S., requires candidates for ordination as elder, and that's 
elder, pastor, same thing. To earn an MDiv, that's a Master's of Divinity, that's a three to four year degree from a theological institution, and requires candidates for ordination as deacon to earn either an MDiv or a Master's degree in another field with additional theological studies. Now, uh, let me preface what I'm, I'm about to launch into a diatribe, okay? A thoughtful diatribe, I think. An informed diatribe, but a diatribe nonetheless. So, but uh, let me kind of um, make some qualifications first. Based on what I'm about to say, someone could wrongly assume my motives and say, well, Sean, what you're about to say, you're just saying because you haven't been to seminary. And of course you would say that. If you had been to seminary, maybe you would say something different. Maybe. That could be true. I don't think it is. I think I'm a halfway decent pastor without seminary. Although one of my regrets is that I, hadn't, I haven't been able to have in-person theological training. I actually think I would have enjoyed it. But I don't think I'm being defensive here. Uh, the church has paid for Will to take seminary classes and will continue to do so. Same thing for Luke and other men who aspire to be pastors. I've encouraged Jeff Underwood to go take formal theological education. So I don't think I have an issue with that. You know? I actually love good godly seminaries, particularly ones that partner with healthy local churches that aspire to raise up men for the ministry. So I don't think this is a me versus seminary thing. I think you'll see that by the time I'm done. Let the diatribe begin. The vesting of authority in someone according to a degree that they have is not biblical. This is a practice that is derived more from the world of managerial business development than the scriptures. Friends, the masters of divinity that so many churches require their new pastors to have is a degree that wasn't even invented until the 1970s. Not the 1870s, not the 1770s, 1970s. And friends, you should know that a lot of what passes for ministerial training in seminaries today is very much in line with the studies of the rabbis in Jesus' day. So much seminary study is about studying according to the traditions that have been established but instead of rabbinical traditions, you study the Methodist traditions or the Reformed traditions or the Church of God traditions. When this church was still a Church of God, I remember I went to go to a funeral and there was a Church of God pastor there and he heard that I was the pastor of this church and he came up to me and he said, so, did you go to, uh, help me, what's the name of the seminary? No, no, somebody tell me. Whatever the name of the official Church of God seminary was. And I was like, no. And he was like, oh, See what I'm saying? It's all about studying according to these traditions. What that leads to is many seminary students knowing more about what scholars have said about the Bible than the Bible itself. What this can lead to is seminary students learning more about how to run a church like a business than how to actually shepherd the flock. It can lead to pastors who are more equipped to quote Calvin than Christ. This is bad. It is wrong. It is exactly in the same vein of what Jesus is dealing with in this morning's text. Are you aware of any seminary requirement in Scripture? I think the closest I can come is 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
That's the requirement, is that you expend yourself in every way possible to make sure that as you pick up this book and try to use it to lead and love God's people, that you will not be ashamed at how you have handled it. That you can say, I've rightly divided this word of truth and fed it to your people by God's grace. Seminaries can do that. And when they do, I love it. When they do it well, I love it. Praise God. But to authenticate the authority of someone's ministry according to whether or not they have a degree is absurd. I have known godly men who know the Bible front and back, who live it out faithfully, who cannot find a job in a church because they don't have a master's of divinity. And I know men who have masters of divinity who are not even Christians who get right through the front door. The authority of someone's ministry, be it a pastor or a deacon or a missionary, is grounded not in a university education, but in the right handling of God's word. The university system itself didn't even come into existence until the 1300s. I wonder whatever God's people did to train up leaders in the church for 1,300 years before the university came into existence. Friends, God's word does not establish a seminary. God's word establishes the church. The church is the main instrument that God uses to prepare people to study God's word well and to use it accordingly. Churches can't do everything. So sometimes we need a little help from outside of ourselves. But we have to make sure that we keep those those ministries that help the church in their proper place and that we never ascribe to them more value than we should. This crowd was not willing to trust in the authority of Jesus because he hadn't been through some man-made credentialed system. The church should not make that same mistake today. So if a missionary comes to this church and they want to seek our support for the mission field, the most important thing we want to know is, do you understand the gospel? Do you know how to apply it faithfully in your ministry? And then if you have a degree, that's great, fine, whatever. One day, I'm not going to be the pastor of this church anymore. Hopefully, very far off into the future. But there's going to have to come a time where you're going to hire someone else who's not me. What are you going to ask that person when they come in and candidate for you? Are you going to ask to see their diploma? Or are you going to spend time trying to figure out how well they know God's word? Now, this same kind of thing happens at the end of chapter 7. Look there at verses 45 through 48. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, Why did you not bring him? And by the way, they, the, they told the officers of the temple court to go arrest Jesus, okay? And, and they didn't do it. And uh, so they said, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Wow. Here's what's happening. The religious leaders send the temple court officers to arrest Jesus for blasphemy. But when the officers encounter Jesus, they are stunned. They're floored. The way that he speaks is like, No, we've never encountered anyone who speaks like this. They go back to the ones who sent them. 
And the, the Pharisees, they cannot believe what's happening. They're like, we're the ones who are in charge. We're, we're, the, we're the big dogs. We're from corporate. Have you been deceived by him too? And then they bring it home like this. They say, have any of the authorities believed in him? Which is supposed to say, you know, if we haven't believed in him, why are you guys believing in him? What we have here, friends, is a conflict of authority. The, the officers say, he speaks with authority, but the Pharisees say, no, we're the credentialed ones. We have the right studies. We have the authority. We're wearing all the cool garb. And we don't recognize his authority. So his authority is not legitimate. Now, why do the chief priests and the authorities reject Jesus' authority? Well, you can see that in verse 17 and 18. Go back there. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So here's the deal. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm out here speaking and people are going to either accept me or reject me. They're either going to believe that my authority is genuine or that it's not. And those who don't think it's genuine, it's because they're seeking their own glory. That's the reason why they can't receive my glory. They're seeking their own glory. And we've already seen this in the book of John, right? Turn back to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 44. Dealing with the question of unbelief, which is the same thing we're dealing with here, Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Same thing. The reason why these religious leaders cannot judge Jesus with an accurate judgment, they cannot see him rightly, is because their vision is clouded with aspirations of their own glory. And friends, you should know that that is still happening today. It's not like this was just unique to the Pharisees. Religious leaders, supposed pastors in the church are still doing this very thing today. I spent about a year building a relationship with a pastor of a very large church here in our city. And uh, it was not easy. But my aim in building this relationship was to try to help this pastor see that what he was preaching and teaching was not the true gospel. And so I did all the things that you would think I would do. I gave him books. I met up with him for conversation. I opened the Bible with him. I prayed for him and with him. And at one point, man, I thought I might be breaking through. I was encouraged. I was excited. I said, God, you may actually be doing something. But then the relationship ended. And as it ended... Uh, I realized, I realized what was happening, you see. I think at the end of our conversations, our, our multiple conversations, I know that he saw what I saw. It was just right there. You can't miss it. He saw what I saw, but he didn't see it, right? That's a theme that comes up in John over and over again. You see, but you don't see. And the reason why he didn't see it is because he saw something else, something that was getting in the way, something that was clouding his vision. And here's what it was. I think he recognized that in order to change, he was going to have to sacrifice some of his glory. 
he was going to have to let this kingdom that he had built up, his own little tiny empire, he was going to have to let that collapse. And he was just too hungry for his own glory. And so the authority of Jesus' word could not come to bear on his life and ministry. Do you understand that being hungry for your own glory is the exact opposite of how Jesus conducted his own ministry? Sure, Jesus did receive glory when people worshiped him because he was God, but he never chased it. His only desire was to do the will of the Father. I want you to know, I want you to hear me this morning when I tell you this. Those who seek glory in this life will never have it. But those who seek to do the will of the Father will have all of his glory and they'll have it forever. It's one of the counterintuitive things about the gospel. You chase it, you won't have it. You chase God, you'll have it all. But you should know that in order for us to have the glory of the Father, the Son had to sacrifice his own glory on the cross. He had to empty himself. He had to come down in the form of a servant And he had to be nailed to that cross like he was a lawbreaker. Like he was a criminal, a slave. When all he ever did was speak the truth of God. All he ever did was walk according to the will of the Father. Nevertheless, he had to be shut in darkness. He had to be shut out from the glory of the presence of his Father. He had to suffer the Father's wrath so that we might be forgiven and united with God forever. Friends, I want us to understand this idea that we are no better than these religious leaders. We all seek after our own glory. As Christians, hopefully we're doing a good job trying to put that to death, but it always breaks through. That old man always finds a way. There's always a crack. Thinking about myself, how often have I told the story that should have been all about God and His grace that I end up making all about me and my works? How many times have I shoved Jesus out of the spotlight and stood in his place? How often have I painted myself as the hero of the story instead of Christ? Why do I do that? Why do you do that? Because we want the glory for ourselves. We are glory hungry. But we need to know that to the degree that we chase after our own glory, to that degree we will be unable to accept Christ's authority in our life. Glory hunger is inescapable. Everyone's going to chase after some kind of glory. That's just how we're built. The glory of God is like the sun. We need it. The question is, are we going to chase our own glory or God's? Now, in closing, I want to bring you back to the introduction to this morning's sermon. In the intro, I told you that everyone will render a judgment on Jesus. And then I showed you Jesus' own words about the kind of judgment that you must render. Do you remember? Go back to verse 24. This is the judgment that you must render. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So I wonder how you have been judging Jesus. I wonder how you've been appraising him. 
I wonder if you've been judging him according to appearances. Maybe you've only ever heard of Jesus, the flower-picking hippie who just is nice to everyone all the time, and and you think, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that weak-willed Jesus. Or maybe you've rejected the Jesus that you've come to know him through Republican politics. You know, the Jesus who's a card-carrying member of the NRA, you know. Or maybe you've accepted or you've rejected the Jesus who's like Santa Claus, you know. He just wants to be nice and put you on his lap and give you gifts if, if you've behaved yourself properly, you know. I don't know how you understand Jesus this morning, but I know that your ability to accurately perceive Jesus is the most important thing in the world for you right now. If you want to know who Jesus is, accurately do not look at your own experience do not look at your own environment do not look to your own intellect and reason do not look to comparative literature classes where they try to put him next to muhammad and buddha look in his word look at jesus here together with his people God has made his son plainly available to us all. If we will only set aside our hunger for our own glory and look at him as he has revealed himself, well then, we will be able to render an accurate judgment. Let's pray.